I want us to read again verse 7 of the passage Kurt just read. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace that Paul describes is really the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a state of mind that comes and goes and is dependent upon circumstances. Joy, however, is not dependent on circumstances if it is the true peace of God. It's a constant mindset, and in fact, ironically, joy can become even stronger when trouble comes. As we celebrate the new year in a few days, we may be tempted at times to focus on a world that is often filled with problems and worries and fears. We may have just sung joy to the world, but at times there's often not much joy, certainly not as much as we would like. As we're about to celebrate the new year and enter 2019, I have a question for you. Do you have joy in your life? If I ask you, or if you ask some of your friends or family or coworkers or neighbors, what response might you hear? You don't know what I'm going through. How can I have joy when my marriage is falling apart? God seems so far away sometimes. My daughter is a drug abuser and her recovery appears hopeless. I've got cancer, how can I rejoice? I work 60 hours a week and I still can't get it all done. Are you following the stock market? My 401k just tanked. We live in a broken world, surrounded by broken lives, broken relationships, and broken systems. Hey, thanks for the encouragement, Pastor. I thought this sermon was supposed to be about joy. Just wait, I promise. The good thing about brokenness is that it often leads us to search for a better way. God made each of us with a purpose to worship Him and to walk with Him. Life doesn't work when we ignore God and His original plan for our lives. We often selfishly insist on doing things our way, outside the will of God. The Bible calls this sin, which leads to further brokenness. The good thing about brokenness is it leads to a place of realizing a need for something greater. Hopefully, if you're not a believer, that's why you're here today. And if you are a believer, hopefully you're searching for more direction in your life for the new year. So what's the solution? How do we have joy all year long? The answer, of course, is found only in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and in His Word, the Bible. Joy has more to do with remaining in the presence of Jesus than with avoiding problems and struggles in our lives. For today's message, I'd like us to focus on the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
However, as Pastor Joe has taught us, it's all about context. Before we dive into our text, let's review why Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church. Let me get a show of hands real quick. How many of you participated in the Matt Chandler Philippian small group study? Okay, maybe about a third of us. We learned from that study there are three reasons for Paul writing this letter. First, Paul wants the church to have practical instruction on how to live because of his great care for them. The primary theme is living the Christian life. He tells them not to worry. He tells them to press on, to model Christ, and much more. This book has much to say to us today about growing and maturing in our faith and pressing into Christ in all humility. Paul exhorted them to follow the example of Christ. Paul also exhorts them to joy. The word joy or rejoice appears 16 times in four chapters. The exhortations contained in this letter make it just as relevant for us today as it did to the Philippians. Secondly, Paul wants to encourage. This is the only one of Paul's letters in which he brings up no negative remarks for the recipients. He doesn't feel the need to call them to repentance, as he does in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians. But he takes the time to commend their actions. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Paul wants to express his gratitude for their gift and great love he has towards them. Even though Paul was in prison, facing an uncertain future, he wrote this thank you letter to the Philippians, a letter that expresses Paul's abundant joy in what God was accomplishing through them. Kurt just read the first nine verses of chapter 4, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. It deals with six topics that might be loosely called Christian attitudes. If you find yourself limping toward the finish line in 2018, my prayer is that these inspired words can make next year and all that follow for you. Number one, stand firm. Number two, settle your differences. Number three, resolve to rejoice. Number four, ask God for a gentle spirit. Number five, pray about everything. And number six, think about holy things. I'll follow each section with some practical applications for us in 2019. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to worship through sharing of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the worship team. Thank you for the unity of believers. Thank you for the opportunities, again, that you give us to share Christ with those that don't know you. Lord, I pray that as the word is preached, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict us. Lord, that you would just illuminate areas in our lives that we haven't given to you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that the word today would inspire them and grab hold of their heart and they would make a profession of faith, Lord. May you be glorified in all that is said and done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So number one, 
Christian attitude number one is to stand firm. We read chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. As you, remain, as you may remember from Pastor Joe's foundations class, whenever you see the word therefore, what are you supposed to do, right? You're supposed to look at the previous chapter, right? Paul tells us in chapter 3 of the experience of the righteousness that comes from God through faith. Verses 7 through 17 in verse 3. The tragic destiny of the enemies of the cross, verses 18 and 19. The present reality of our heavenly citizenship and the expectation of Christ's return to restore all things in verse 20 and 21. These are certainly compelling motives to stand firm. Paul always bases his commands on the solid ground of what Christ has done and what he will do. God's grace always precedes, surrounds, empowers, and concludes the life of obedience as we stand firm. Before Paul challenges his friends to stand firm, he reminds them of his deep affection for them. The way he addresses his friends leaves no room to doubt his genuine love for them. He piles up five terms of endearment to describe his close relationship with them. My brothers, whom I loved, longed for, my joy and my crown, and beloved. The call to stand firm refers to a soldier staying faithfully at his post no matter what's happening around him. Let the enemy attack as he will. The soldier's orders are clear. Stand firm. This command was often repeated by the Apostle Paul. As I share some other scriptures throughout the sermon today, I encourage you to write the verses down and take a deeper dive on your own later this week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, stand firm in the faith. In Ephesians 6.14, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Philippians 1.27, stand firm in one spirit. Colossians 4.12, stand firm in all the will of God. And 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. So first... We stand firm as citizens of heaven, as a community of exiles on earth. We are to remain steadfast in our loyalty as we declare with our words and with our lives our allegiance to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Second, we stand firm in our commitment to the cross of Christ in the face of those who oppose us as the enemies of the cross. Our commitment to Christ causes hostility and suffering. But we're not intimidated. Our resolve to stand firm is intensified by our participation in the suffering of Christ. Third, we stand firm by being united in one mind and one spirit. We cannot stand firm divided and alone. We stand firm when we are linked arm in arm heart with heart in our community of brothers and sisters. This understanding of what it means to stand firm 
is further defined by the phrase, in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord means that we remain strong and resolute in union with our Lord by exhibiting His Lordship over our lives, by following our Lord's way to the cross, and by walking in unity with each other in our corporate union with our Lord. I promised after every Christian attitude, I would move directly to application. So application for the first Christian attitude. So why do you think Paul had this repeated emphasis on standing firm? I think he had a healthy respect for Satan's attempts to discourage and distract the children of God. He knew that we would be sorely tempted to leave our post when the bullets of temptation start whizzing by our heads. So he repeats it again, stand firm. Stand firm. This is where a joyful new year begins. I exhort you to stand firm. Husbands, stand firm. Wives, stand firm. Parents, stand firm. Students, stand firm. Singles, stand firm. Whoever you are and wherever you are and whatever you are doing, if you are a follower of Jesus in 2019, if you don't do anything else, stand firm in the Lord. Christian attitude number two, settle your differences. Boy, did I pray on this one. I've got a lot of time devoted to this one because I believe that conflict is really one of the major challenges in the Christian church in the 21st century. It certainly has been a challenge in this church and lots of other churches that we all know. So let me read the two verses. Verse 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul next deals with a difficult and delicate problem inside the Philippian church. It seems two leading women couldn't get along with each other. He encourages these women who are beloved with a tender, friendly tone to be reconciled with one another. One was named Euodia, which means sweet smell, and the other was named Syntyche, which means friendly. We don't know much about these women or the precise nature of their dispute. They were evidently well-known leaders in the church who had a serious falling out. And for whatever reason, sweet smell and friendly weren't very sweet or friendly to each other. I find it instructive that Paul doesn't give us many details. Instead of taking sides, he simply exhorts these two Christian women to settle their differences. It's a pretty useful principle to remember because in most disputes, it usually doesn't matter who started it. We do know this much. Paul regards these women as genuine believers. Their names are written in the book of life. 
They are evidently personal friends of his who worked with him in founding the church at Philippi. Instead of focusing on the causes, Paul exhorts these two women to agree, which literally means to come to one mind. It doesn't mean seeing eye to eye on every detail. Instead, it indicates a personal choice to focus on the things that united them in Christ in the first place. To be of the same mind means to think the same thing, have the same attitude, have the same opinion, and be intent on the same goal. When one's attitude of mind is in the Lord, union with the Lord informs and inspires the attitude. Paul wants these two women to have the right attitude toward each other by focusing on their life in union with the Lord. When their common bond in the Lord becomes central, their attitude towards each other will be the same as Christ Jesus expressed on the way to the cross. They will not claim their rights for their own advantage. They will take the form of a servant and they will humble themselves. Apparently, Paul did not think these two women would resolve their conflict on their own. So he calls for another person to be a go-between, a mediator to guide them to reconciliation in verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Paul requests for third-party intervention shows how deep the division these two women had and how wide the negative impact of their division was in the church. This is the nature of conflict, isn't it? As we ponder this short section of Scripture, I was reminded of principles we as a church, Riverside, learned years ago from Ken Sandy's Peacemakers Ministry in the midst of our own history of church conflict here at Riverside. And the Lord prompted me, without allowing me to get out of it, as I thought I wanted to, to spend even more time on this section. So the Holy Spirit is guiding this here. You remember the four G's of conflict? Glorify God, get the log out of your own eye, gently restore, and go and be reconciled. So the Lord told me I needed to review those with you in case there is a conflict that exists here among any members of this church, or if you're holding a grudge from years past with former members or other folks, other Christians uh, or non-Christians, I hope this reminder will be useful. The first G is to glorify God. You can glorify God in the midst of conflict by trusting Him, obeying Him, and imitating Christ. One of the best ways to keep these concerns uppermost in your mind is to regularly ask yourself the focusing question, how can I please and honor the Lord in this conflict? The first G is to glorify God. The second G, get the log out of your own eye. Principle set forth in Matthew 7, 5, where Jesus says, you hypocrite, First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
When you identify ways that you have wronged another person, it's important to admit and confess your wrongs honestly and thoroughly. As God guides and empowers these efforts, you can find freedom from the idols that fuel conflict and be motivated to make choices that will please and honor Christ. This change in heart will usually speed a resolution to the conflict and at the same time improve your ability to avoid similar conflicts in the future. The third G is to gently restore. Another key principle of peacemaking involves an effort to help others understand how they may have contributed to the conflict. When Christians think about talking to someone about a conflict, Matthew 18 comes to mind. If an initial conversation doesn't resolve the conflict, don't give up. If repeated careful attempts at a private discussion are not fruitful, and if the matter is still too serious to overlook, you should ask one or two other believers to meet with you and your opponent to help you resolve your differences. This is exactly what Paul is doing here in verse 3 by asking his true companion to help these women resolve their conflict. And the fourth G, go and be reconciled. One of the most unique features of biblical peacemaking is the pursuit of genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. Even though Christians have experienced the greatest forgiveness in the world, we often fail to show that forgiveness to others. Praise God that Jesus didn't do this to us. Instead, he forgives you totally and opens the way for genuine reconciliation. He calls you to forgive others in exactly the same way. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Some other verses for you to write down. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Psalm 103, 12. Isaiah 43, 25. Remember that forgiveness is a spiritual process that we cannot accomplish on our own. Therefore, as you seek to forgive others, continually ask God to enable you to imitate his wonderful forgiveness toward you. And here's the application. I've already spoken to it, but I'm going to repeat it. I believe unresolved conflict is a big deal in the life of many in this congregation today and certainly in the church as a whole. Most of our conflict, conflicts could be resolved by considering others more important than ourselves, by being like-minded and choosing to rejoice instead of being resentful. When we're willing to set aside our pride and emotions, we can easily move to reconciliation. These are good words we need to take heart. I exhort all of you to consider the state of your relationships don't enter 2019 without making a sincere effort to settle your disagreements. Let's make 2019 the year of reconciliation. Please ask the Lord to help you to settle your differences. Christian attitude number three. I did tell you this is a two-hour sermon, right? No, I'm just kidding. 
Not really. Only 40 minutes, I promise. Christian attitude number three, resolve to rejoice. I asked Drew if he would have the worship team sing, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. I would sing it, but I don't sing. I could ask my wife to do it, but uh, a very familiar verse to us. Paul's third command is quite simple. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Though short, this command may be the most difficult one to obey consistently. Note that this command to rejoice is repeated. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's because we tend to forget this one in the midst of dealing with difficult people and upsetting problems of our lives. When Paul says rejoice always, he's not talking about a positive mental attitude or giddiness or just to put on a happy face or look at the silver lining. The rejoicing he has in mind is not based on outward circumstances. It's crucial that we understand that because our circumstances can often be quite challenging. Where was Paul when he wrote these words? He was in a Roman prison chained to Roman guards 24 hours a day. He was on trial for his life with no certain hope of release. I take it that Paul didn't enjoy being in prison, but he found reasons to rejoice even in this difficult circumstance. Although the addition of the adverb always indicates that rejoicing does not depend on specific circumstances, the fulfillment of all other goals in the Christian walk flows out of the practice of rejoicing in the Lord. That's worth repeating. The fulfillment of all other goals in the Christian walk flows out of the practice of rejoicing in the Lord. The simple phrase, in the Lord, provides the essential key to joy in every circumstance. No matter what anxiety circumstances cause, there is still a defiant nevertheless in the Lord. We rejoice. Our relationship with the Lord is so central our li- are, are so central to our lives that all other factors cannot shake our sense of enthusiasm in Him. The Psalms commend us, Rejoice, the Lord is King, Psalm 97.1. Uh, Psalm 101, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It ushers the people of God into corporate worship. Again, we're so blessed with Drew and the worship team for focusing us in joyful worship of the Lord so we can be united in heart and lifted above the circumstances of life in a vision of the awesome majesty of the Lord. So here's our application. I don't know if you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you, but if not, do this later. Here's homework to apply the lesson today. Sometime between now and January 1st, Take a sheet of paper and write at the top reasons to rejoice today. Give yourself five or ten minutes and list as many reasons as you can think of to rejoice in the Lord. I did this recently, and here's the list I came up with in about two minutes. Number one, my sins are forgiven. I have a Savior. 
I have many friends. I'm blessed with an amazing church family. I have the Word of God to guide me. I have the Holy Spirit to lead me. I have a beautiful wife of 34 years who loves me, with whom I'm blessed to share my life. I have an awesome son who is our worship leader and youth group leader. The blessing of our daughter-in-law and, and grandchild and our extended family. I have good health. I have a great job that allows me to work with amazing people. I have many answered prayers. People who pray for me. The promise of eternal life. What are your reasons to rejoice? In 2019, I exhort you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Christian attitude number four. Ask God for a gentle spirit. In verse 5 we read, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. My translation has the word reasonableness. There are some other translations out there that use the word gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Greek scholars tell us that the word translated gentleness is a hard one to precisely translate into English. Other possible uh, definitions include moderation, forbearance, mildness, fair-mindedness. One of my favorites is inner calmness. Those who are truly rejoicing in the Lord at all times will be characterized by a gentleness to all. This is how other people are to experience the Christian's joy in the Lord. This inner calmness should be seen by all who know us. Often the holidays bring out just the opposite. Something about this time of the year that offers, that offers ample proof of human depravity. Many of us have endured some painful moments as our family and friends gathered to celebrate Christmas. Gentleness should not be reserved only for close friends and family or for fellow Christians. It should be evident to all. Paul calls for Christians to have a reputation of being courteous. Friends, listen. If you're tuned out, listen carefully. This includes social media. Especially in a society hostile to the Christian faith, Christians are called to respond to opposition with gentleness to all. Harsh attacks quickly spark defensive responses, don't they? The assurance that the Lord is near provides needed encouragement to maintain the attitude of gentleness to all in a time of suffering, focusing on our eternal victory in Christ. And if you didn't need additional application, I've got one more for you. Here's a simple question. Would the people who know you best consider you a gentle person? Would that even pop into their minds when they think about you? Or to make the question even harder, would the people who like you least 
consider you a gentle person. Ouch. That's the real test. Anyone can be gentle around nice people, but only the Spirit of the Lord can enable you to respond gently to people who mistreat you. In 2019, let's live like Jesus' return is nearing. Ask God for a gentle spirit. Christian attitude number five, pray about everything. Verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love those passages. I'm going to put that on the mirror at home. This famous passage begins with the phrase, do not be anxious about anything. I actually prefer the King James Version. It says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Paul understands that anxious thoughts naturally multiply in times of trouble. But he calls for his friends to make a concerted effort to stop their obsession with worrying. There's no exception. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is a proper object of the continuous stress of worry. This is very, very good advice, but it's really hard to do, isn't it? Did you know that most of the time you spend worrying is basically wasted emotional energy? This is yes. Some years ago, a professor at a leading American university studied the things people worry about. His research yielded the following results. 40% of what we worry about never happens. 30% concern the past. 12% are needless worries about health. And 10% are about petty issues. Only 8% are legitimate concerns. That means 92% of your worry time is wasted energy. Worry is, re it, worry is wrong because it assumes that God can't take care of you. He promised to care for you. But when you worry, you're saying, Lord, I don't believe you. I don't believe you can, can take care of me, so I'm going to take matters back into my own hands. So what's the opposite of worry? Prayer. Prayer and, prayer and worry are opposites, like water and fire. You can worry or you can pray, but you can't do both at the same time. So Paul has three pieces of advice for us worriers. Pray about everything, pray with thanksgiving, and pray with expectation as you present your request to God. Only by praying with thanksgiving in every situation is it possible to stop being anxious about anything. Paul encourages the Philippians to turn their worries into petitions to God. The readers of 1 John are encouraged to pray because God hears whatever we ask according to his will. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the request we asked of him. 1 John 5.15. Literally, Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. By telling us to let our requests be made known to God, Paul is not presupposing that God doesn't already know our needs before we ask. But he is calling for full self-disclosure in God's presence. By expressing our specific request to God, we acknowledge our total dependence upon him. All of these prayers are to be bathed in thanksgiving. This gives the right attitude and perspective in prayer. Paul's own prayers exemplify the practice of praying with thanksgiving. Uh, also in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Thanksgiving means giving God the glory in everything, making room for him, casting our care on him, letting it be his care. Without thanksgiving, prayer becomes merely a way of complaining to God about all the bad things that are or might be happening in our lives. When you take your burdens to the Lord, he replaces your worries with something much greater, the peace that passes all human understanding. Verse 7, that peace, verse 7 says, that peace will guard your heart. It's actually a military metaphor for soldiers guarding the city gates from the inside. When you pray, God's peace becomes a guard on your heart, protecting you from the cares of the world that would otherwise destroy you. The condition for experiencing God's peace is not that God grants all of our requests. When we pray with constant thanksgiving and perfect trust, the focus is not at all upon what we are doing, but on what God will do. God will do something supernatural beyond our best abilities and thoughts. The peace of God will guard us. Peace is always the gift of God rather than humanly devised or achieved. The peace of God is the opposite of anxiety. The peace of God which surpasses or transcends all understanding. The phrase transcends all understanding means that the peace of God is far superior to human reason. Here's our application. As we enter the new year, how can we apply this scripture to our life? On the screen, I have Paul's formula for joy. At least that's what should be on the screen. Awesome. I'm a pharmacist. I like math formulas. I'm sorry. So Thanksgiving plus prayer and supplications, minus anxiety, is, yields the peace of God. So if we, if our prayers and supplications are bathed in thanksgiving, that's going to take away the anxiety, and that will yield the peace of God. We all have our own concerns that trouble us. It may be health issues or financial pressures, a big decision you need to make, family or marital problems, Issues at school or on the job, 
Here's my question to you. Do you know for certain what will happen next year? Of course you don't. Can your worrying about the future change the course of events? Nope. Then why bother worrying at all? The past is done. The future is not yet. Why let worry ruin the present? The superiority of God's peace over human planning and ingenuity fuels the promise that God's peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Another practical application of this verse is an invitation for you to join us for the week of prayer starting next Sunday. In your bulletins, you have Riverside Prayer Week, Prayer Guide, January 6th through the 12th. Take a look at that. Beginning next Sunday, uh, we're going to have, we're going to kick off the new year recognizing our dependence on the Lord. We will have two Sunday messages, uh, evening prayer service next Sunday, and various structured times here at the church, and also an encouragement for you to pray with your family at home. The prayer guides are right here for you. I hope everyone takes part in that. All right, believe it or not, finally, he's at his last number here. Christian attitude number six, think holy thoughts. Verses eight and nine, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent Excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul wraps up his directives for the Christian life, reminding us to focus our minds on all that is excellent or praiseworthy. Paul defines all that is excellent with a list of eight characteristics. These are the things we need to think about. Whatever is true and noble and right and pure, whatever is lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, these are the things that we should think about. Developing a Christian mind and character requires a lifetime of discerning and disciplined thought about all the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. This can only happen as a result of God's peace guarding the hearts and minds of believers. So I'm going to move straight to application. Our passage closes with an exhortation to think holy thoughts. Did you know that the average person has 10,000 separate thoughts each day? That works out to about 3.5 million thoughts a year. If you live to be 75, you'll have 260 million different thoughts. Already, most of you had over 2,000 separate thoughts since you got out of bed this morning. You'll probably have another 8,000 before you hit the sack tonight. Then that process starts all over again. The principle behind Paul's words is simple. Holiness always begins in the mind. And unfortunately, so does sin. 
Sin is anything that doesn't glorify God. When Paul says, think about such things, the command is in the present tense. Keep on thinking about these things. Find what is true and think about it. Find the lovely and think about it. Find the virtuous and think about it. Do it. And verse 9 says, the God of peace will be with you. So the next slide shows the question, what's your filter? If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit is your filter. Only Jesus can turn your thoughts to holy things. Paul's command put into practice should challenge us to move beyond thought to action. Paul knew that these recent converts needed more than an instruction manual. They needed a mentor to know how to have the same attitude of mind, the attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. The call to be like Christ is not enough. Paul sets forth his own life as a model to other believers. We need to be doing that as well. As we're ending our time together, I have one final application. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is the time for action. I started the service today speaking about the brokenness that exists in this world. Apart from Christ, our lives are broken and we need a remedy. Because of his love, God did not leave us in our brokenness. Jesus, God in human flesh, came to rescue us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took our sin and shame to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin by his death. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and restored to a relationship with God. If you want true peace and joy for 2019 and for all eternity, you must admit your sinful brokenness and stop trusting in yourself. You must ask God to forgive you, turning from sin to trust only in Jesus. This is what it means to repent and believe. Believing we receive new life through Jesus Christ and God turns our lives in a new direction. If you're ready to accept Jesus this morning, I'll ask you to come up after the service and either myself or one of the other elders would like to talk with you and pray with you. If you're a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit to enable you to obey every command in the passage. You can literally ask the Holy Spirit to change your mind by remembering that joy and peace can only be found in Jesus. If you are in Christ, pray that he will give you the power. He is the embodiment of everything Paul has commanded us to do. It's all in Jesus. All virtue, all beauty, all holiness, all truth, all that is good and right is found in him. This is not some abstract philosophy, but a call to a personal relationship with Jesus. My exhortation is simple. Hold on to Jesus. Think about him, rest in him, live in him, 
when Jesus Christ reigns in your heart, you will be able to stand firm. You'll be able to settle your differences. You'll be able to resolve to rejoice. You'll be able to ask God for a gentle spirit. You'll be able to pray about everything and think holy thoughts. We stand at the brink of a new year. This year, 2019, this coming year, is filled with great possibilities. What will it mean for you? Choose eternal joy, being mature and complete in Christ. The joy of Christ will reduce your anxiety as you recognize his sovereign control over all things. The joy of Christ will become contagious through us and draw others to him. The joy of Jesus is available to all right now. Let's seek to make 2019 the best year of our lives for the glory of God. As the worship team comes up, let us pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We rejoice in you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the strength we need to stand firm. Father, we ask that you would just illuminate any conflicts and help us to resolve those conflicts. Help us to settle our differences. Lord, as we interact with Christians and non-Christians around us, give us a gentle spirit. Lord, may your Holy Spirit empower us to think only holy thoughts. Lord, give us a desire to pray unceasingly for your glory to be revealed in our lives. Help us, Lord, to minister to others and to be a light in the midst of so much darkness in this world. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you for this opportunity to worship you through the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.